Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Chronically Mom podcast. I am your host, Michelle Pickens. I am a mom of two little ones, and I am also a patient advocate for those with IBD. I have Crohn's disease myself and have been sharing my journey through chronic illness and motherhood via my blog, chronicallyblonde.com, and my social media at chronicallyblonde on Instagram. For this week's episode, I sat down with Tamara Duker-Fryman to chat about diet and IBD. Tamara is a New York-based registered dietitian, author, and nationally known expert on medical nutrition therapy for GI diseases. Tamara is the author of The Bloated Belly Whisperer and Regular, which just came out. She has written hundreds of articles regarding digestive health and nutrition, and she's helped countless patients with their own digestive health. During our conversations, we got into why a customized approach to diet is a must, why we shouldn't have to fear fiber as an IBD patient, and we even got into talking about the OG health influencers. Spoiler alert, it is not who you think. Without further ado, here is my chat with Tamara. Welcome. Thank you so much for, uh, for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So I guess to get things started, do you want to tell me a little bit about your background, um, how you really got into digestive health? Uh, Walk me through that. Sure. So I am a registered dietitian and I work in a New York City gastroenterology practice with 20 gastroenterologists and two other dietitians. Um, I have worked in GI settings for 13 years and so I pretty much exclusively worked with people who have various types of digestive disorders or um, diseases including inflammatory bowel disease but certainly not limited to it. Um, and look, I mean, this is a second career for me, uh, dietetics. So I kind of went back to school when I was 30, um, after kind of starting out in the corporate business world. Um, yeah. So it was about a year into my career transition where I think a professor of mine threw up a slide on the, on the screen, um, with like a really just basic line drawing of the GI tract and kind of showing all the different sections, the stomach and the duodenum and the ileum and the jejunum and the colon, and really like kind of what's going on, uh, physiologically at each point along the way, what's being absorbed and, you know, and what's happening at each stage of the journey. And that really kind of captured my attention because, um, when you think about the GI tract kind of as, as having this roadmap and understanding what is going on and, along the way, you can really make this one-to-one connection with nutrition and food, which is, hey, if there's a problem or inflammation or, you know, a surgery or something in that particular neighborhood, here's how it's going to affect you nutritionally and, and maybe even symptomatically. And so um, I really enjoyed learning about that direct one-to-one connection between GI physiology and food and nutrition and understanding that as a dietitian working in that space, you can make a huge impact on somebody's health, somebody's life, somebody's symptom management, somebody's, you know, nutrition status. And so it just kind of captivated me early on. That's amazing. So what inspired you to um, start writing and really sharing your, um, your findings on a larger platform? That's a great question. I mean, hmm, I guess I've always been the kind of person that gets excited about what I learn, (laughs) you know, and when I kind of know something or find something cool, it's like, I want to shout it from the rooftops. I want how to come. I didn't know this. Like everyone should know this, you know, so you know, that's definitely, I think, part of my personality. Um, And that's why I started writing articles online pretty early on in my career. I think the book thing came many, many years later, 
well, not that many. I've only been doing this for 13 years. Um, but the book thing really kind of came out of this realization after, you know, kind of working in GI spaces for many years, patient after patient kind of coming to me with the same issues, the same misunderstandings, the same questions, wow. the same stuff that they're seeing online and that's get they're getting it all wrong. And it's like, you know, I'm not scalable. I'm one person working in New York City in an industry where, you know, not even everyone can afford to see me because insurance coverage is so bad. Like me working and dispelling myths and educating people one at a time is not very scalable. So how do you get good, helpful, practical, actionable information out into the world? You know, many people would say the internet, (laughs) you know, which is fair. You know, I think that the internet can get really noisy. Yeah. Right. Like it's like everyone on the internet is on a soapbox and, and frankly, your ability to cut through has nothing to do with how correct you are or how truthful you are. It's how good you are at social media and SEO and algorithm, (laughs) algorithm busting. And like, I am not that, like, I am not a digital native. I'm a little older than you are, I think, Michelle. So, you know, like, (laughs) that's just not where I excel. It's not, I don't love, you know, being online that much. And so I felt that, you know, if I could just like write a book that is, you know, pretty evergreen, that would stand the test of time and stand the test of trends, um, that would be my way to kind of get, get my message out into the world. Well, you did an amazing job. And as someone who has, has been to many, uh, dietitians and GI doctors over the years, there was a lot that I learned in the book that I didn't know. And I'm like, how have I spent so many years as a patient being focused and even on advocacy in this area? And there's stuff that I didn't know about this. So it was just very, very eye-opening. And one of the things that I think is so powerful about how you write the book is it, it makes care and it makes these scientific and medical terms more accessible to the everyday person. Um, so in the beginning of the book, when you're describing, Hey, here's really the lay of the land of what's going on. I don't think I've ever been in a doctor's office where they've described that to me in so much detail. And I've been like, okay, yes, I get it. So that was just really, really helpful that, that you did that. Um, and then, you know, went into those different, uh, different potential areas of, uh, like problematic areas. Um, so I, I read through the whole book, but I really focused in on the, um, IBD section because obviously I have Crohn's disease, um, and a lot of listeners have, have IBD as well. Um, so can you walk me through, just why it's beneficial to really understand what's going on with your GI system as someone with IBD? Sure. I mean, I think that there's a couple of reasons that come to mind. So the first one is, you know, it can be very overwhelming to have any diagnosis and to go into a doctor's office and, you know, doctors just, I think constitutionally are very focused on treatment. Like, here's what we're going to do. Here's a medication. And like, it can feel like a lot. And if you don't really understand what is going on in your body and why that treatment is going to address what is going on in your body, there can be a lot of trepidation or fear or hesitancy around following through with your treatment. These drugs are very scary. These are like big drugs. I've read about their side effects online. Like, oh my God, like, I don't, you know, I don't, 
I have reservations about that. And yeah. if you kind of understand mechanistically what's happening in your body, and then you can then kind of understand how these medications or treatments that you're being offered address that specific pathology, I think it can kind of help you come on board with the type of care that ultimately should is supposed to get you better. Um, and, you know, and I see that also a lot, not just in IBD, I see that in IBS, right? Like the big yeah. classic example in IBS is that patients with IBS go in and the doctor, you know, suggests an antidepressant and the patient yeah. is understandably very upset about that. What are you saying? Like, you think that this is all in my head. You think it's because I'm depressed. You think it's because I'm like anxious. Right. And, and because I think doctors have not had traditionally done a great job explaining no. <laughs> IBS is a disorder of, you know, the gut brain interaction. And one of the main hormones that kind of produces IBS symptoms is serotonin. And in IBS, there is issues, you know, with, you know, serotonin receptors and serotonin production. And these medications are used off label at really low doses to help, you know, address the serotonin balance in your gut, which can address your IBS symptoms. Yeah. If that conversation is had, the patient's like, oh, sounds great. Give me an antidepressant. I right. want to address the serotonin in my gut and feel better. But when that conversation doesn't happen, you kind of leave being like, that doctor was a jerk. He thinks I'm crazy. Like, I'm not taking this drug. And like, you can also imagine the same thing happening in IBD and in other conditions. And so I think taking the time to really understand the what and the why is helpful for you as a patient to feel much more invested in your treatment options. Um, and then also, I mean, my big sort of crusade in my life is combating misinformation online. Yeah. Um, and I think when you don't understand how your body works, you're really vulnerable to falling for disinformation, misinformation, you know, pseudoscience. Um, you know, a lot of people out there are making a lot of money off the backs of, oh, yes. <laughs> of folks suffering from chronic digestive issues, right? Like, digestive symptoms are miserable and anyone like you will believe anybody who tells you that they can get you better. Yeah. And that can cost you hundreds and often thousands of dollars out of pocket that insurance doesn't cover because people will lie to you or misrepresent what's going on in your body and what the remedies that they are selling you will do for you. And so I really think that knowledge is power and understanding really truly how your body works and what is evidence-based and what's not evidence-based uh, is important for you to also protect yourself. That is a really great point. And as you were saying that I'm, you can't see me, but I'm like frantically nodding my head because <laughs> I can't tell you how many times a day it's, you get, you know, messages on Instagram or emails of people trying to sell you something that's going to fix your GI problems. And then even the, um, the different diets that are coming out and are trendy. I know you address some of them in, in your book. Um, but I think there are a lot of big claims that are made and it's not necessarily evidence-based and you can be quick to jump into something that maybe could be more harmful than beneficial to your situation. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, look, a lot of people will kind of dismiss my concerns around the supplementation or the tests or whatever they're going for because, well, you know, it's natural, like, you know, me maybe it'll help me and maybe it won't, but it won't hurt me. And that's so not true. Like I have actually seen a lot of harm done by pseudoscience and I've seen eating disorders get generated in this space. I've seen people yeah. develop permanent 
neuropathy, which is nerve damage from B6, vitamin B6 toxicity, because people are being told that, oh, you don't metabolize the B vitamins well, you have this genetic mutation and you need to megadose B6. And after months and years of doing that, they develop a B6 toxicity, which it has permanent side effects. And so, you know, your liver, like one out of five causes of acute liver damage is caused by dietary supplements. You know, what? they're these really calm. Yes. One in five, like your liver is like your detox organ. Oh and some of, I know an excessive supplementation can literally toxify your detox organ. And so we think that these things are natural and, you know, I'm willing to take a chance that they may not be helpful because maybe they will be helpful. And I don't think enough um, seriousness is paid to the fact that these can be actively harmful. Wow. That's, I, I did not know that about the, the liver. That is, that is crazy. And especially in, you know, if you're an IBD patient and your, your liver's processing the different medications that you're on and stuff, I can't imagine it's good. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I can't imagine it's good to then be overtaxing it with these additional, uh, supplements that aren't maybe necessary. So I guess that really speaks to the important importance of why, you need to know what's going on and you need to be working with the team of people that are, are, you know, knowledgeable in this space and, and monitoring what you're doing. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, I know you were, you were uh, mentioning misinformation earlier. So a common myth that I feel like I hear all the time is as an IBD patient, we hear that diet doesn't impact our disease. Um, and just, you know, go on this medicine. That's the kind of fix all. So you disputed this, um, in the book and you provided some strong reasoning on why this isn't true. So can you briefly walk through that and then how you've seen this show up in patients that you've treated? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, look, I've been in GI practice, as I said, for 13 years, and probably for the first half of my career as a GI dietitian, I heard the same thing that you're hearing, which is patients would come to me, be like, my doctor didn't send me to you because they told me that diet didn't matter. But like, I know that I feel differently when I eat different foods, and I want to do everything I can. And, and so I definitely heard that the first probably first several years of my career, I have not heard that at all in the past few years, which is really um, exciting. And yeah. I know I just, as you did, came back from the DDW meeting in Chicago and, you know, all the IBD talks like were acknowledging diet. And, and so I think that there is now like widespread acceptance in the GI doctor community that diet, of course, does matter. We actually have some evidence now and, and it matters in many ways. So we now have some really good evidence that, you know, diet chronic habitual diet plays a role in risk of developing IBD. So even before you have IBD, your like habitual diet, even in your teenage years has been linked to increased or decreased risk of developing IBD. Um, your intake of ultra high processed foods has a risk of developing IBD. And for those people who already have IBD, we're definitely now seeing some data to support the idea of different dietary components being helpful in terms of achieving remission and maintaining remission. For Crohn's disease, we see that with fruits and vegetables and fiber. With mm -hmm. ulcerative colitis, we're seeing specifically a role for omega-3 fats um, as being kind of helpful. Uh, we're seeing some suggestion um, that certain food additives from ultra-high processed foods can exacerbate IBD. 
um, for people who already have it. And so some recommendations now coming out around avoiding certain food additives. Um, and so we do have, you know, some more guidelines now around if you have Crohn's disease, what should you be emphasizing and eating more of in your diet? What should you be eating less of? If you have ul ulcerative colitis, same thing. Um, and then we even have a recent study that takes two kind of popular diets and takes them head to head, the Mediterranean diet and the specific carbohydrate diet yeah. and studied them in people with mild to moderate Crohn's disease who are already also on medications and see like, Hey, like what percentage can we actually quantify what percentage of people may benefit from adding one of these types of diets to their medication regimen. And we see that in both of them, it's like, you know, around 35% of people with moderate to with mild to moderate Crohn's seem to have better clinical outcomes um, and also increased remission um, when they follow one of these diets compared to just following their usual diet. And so we're now even starting to be able to quantify like, hey, like what are the chances that if you adopted one of these diets, you could expect a bump in terms of uh, the efficacy of the medication that you're on. And so it's not 100%. What and what is, but that's a nice chunk, 35% yeah. of people from the first study. And that's only one study, right? Like right. if there are more studies with larger populations, we might be able to kind of see different and larger effect sizes. And so, you know, we actually now have some research um, with all aspects of diet and all aspects of the disease process. And, you know, like I said, I don't think doctors are saying to patients anymore that diet doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, that's incredible that, that you're able to see those, um, quantifiable results. And I think that makes a huge difference to a patient on, um, you know, being able to see that another thing, when you were mentioning the diets going head to head, it, it reminded me of in your book, when you're making it very accessible to eat according to these diet plans. So I think a lot of the times, um, when you hear, okay, you have to change your diet or go on a specific, uh, nutrition regimen, it can feel really overwhelming. Um, but you made it very, no pun intended, like digestible, um, to, to read through. And I, there's one part and I, I took a picture and I sent it to my mom. Cause I'm like, this speaks to me. It was the section that was, uh, if you, for people that don't cook at all, I hate cooking. And I was like, this is great. You have a whole, a whole, uh, thing on how to follow these diets. It's it, you're living your life, you know, out and about like one of the options is like a Chipotle burrito bowl. I'm like, that's amazing that, you know, you're, you're making these, these diets accessible and it's not such this, uh, unattainable, um, uh, kind of goal that, that can be really difficult, um, to kind of manage, especially when you're managing your disease. Yeah. I mean, look, I practice in New York city, like, you know, a large percentage of my patients, have never turned on their oven, you know, yeah. or like, and I've even had some that don't even have an oven. And I've had some patients that don't even have a microwave. And so, you know, I am very used to working with populations of people who dislike cooking, can't cook, don't cook, empty nesters who have said, I will never cook again now that my kids are out of the house. So yeah. like, you know, and I, I really reject this dogmatism in the world of, you know, wellness and, and health, which is like, in order to be healthy and have a healthy lifestyle, you have to like cook all your own meals from scratch. Like, yes. I mean, I like to cook and I enjoy cooking. And I'm also like a busy working parent who cannot cook <laughs> three meals a day, seven days a week for my, my children. And so, you know, you have to figure out, like, I live in this world. I live in my life. Like, how do I 
eat as healthfully as possible and in a way that supports my, you know, whatever it is, my GI management goals, um, but not quit my job and, you know, be chained to the kitchen the whole time. And so you have to meet people where you are, where they are, and you have to not make perfect the enemy of good um, because doing something and making generally good choices will get you more results than being like, this is too hard. I can't do any of it. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, from my perspective, I, um, I have a history of an eating disorder as well and IBD. So anytime that I hear a, a diet plan where it's like, okay, you have to make everything from scratch and be looking at every label obsessively, like it feels very counterintuitive. So I love that your approach isn't that one size fits all approach. It's like, Hey, let's work with where you're at, what you need, what your lifestyle is like, and, and, you know, make it happen for you. So that's just very, very refreshing. Um, so I guess a follow-up question to that is when you're meeting with a patient, how do you really customize those recommendations based on their situation? Right. So I don't have like like meal plans. Like I don't have like pre-printed meal plans. Like eat this for breakfast, eat this for lunch. Like the way that I work with a patient is I have them walk me through a day of their life. What do you eat for breakfast? What do you eat for lunch? Where do you like, oh, you eat out a lot for dinner. What type of restaurants do you like to go to? Oh, you have cereal with almond milk. What brand of almond milk do you use? Like I really kind of understand what you're doing. And then I help tweak a version 2.0 of your current diet. How do I take what you're already doing, what you clearly enjoy, what's clearly convenient for you, and tweak where it needs to be tweaked so it still very much feels like your diet and not my diet that I'm imposing on you in a way that's more consistent with your goals? Oh, you have Crohn's disease and we have a lot of food additives in your diet? Okay, let's go through the brands of almond milk and the non-dairy stuff you're using and let me give you a different brand to buy that doesn't have those additives done. It's still like your breakfast, but like you're buying a different brand. Like, oh, you like to go out for lunch every day. You don't pack. Like, let's go online and look what, like at the places that are near your office, like on Google maps. And like, let me give you like four or five things you could order from these places instead of the, like wherever you're going. I mean, it's, it's really just about like figuring out what you're already doing and figuring out where we can modify it, um, to get a really high impact without completely blowing up your life. Once in a while, somebody comes to me and says, I want you to blow up my life. (laughs) I want to start from scratch. I want to completely just have a clean slate. I will do whatever you say. But that's actually pretty rare. Some people are actually really scared to come to me or to a dietitian because they're afraid of what I'm going to take away from them. You know what I mean? I I hear that all the time. It like makes me so sad. And it's not like about me taking away from you. It's about me helping you meet your goals and, you know, figuring out a way for you to meet your own goals. And, and so it's really just, you know, finding what works well for you and making it work better for you and your condition. So it sounds very collaborative is, is what I'm hearing, which is awesome. Yeah, it has to be. So like, usually after I meet with someone, I make these recommendations. I'm like, let's talk again in two to three weeks. And then 
we troubleshoot, right? Like what we're talking now is sort of like the, the opening offer, the starting bid. Yeah. And then we come back and you tell me what's working and what's not working. You're like, oh, this thing you told me, like, that's amazing. I love that bar that I switched to, or yeah. the new almond milk is incredible. Or, you know what, tomorrow I can't find this thing anywhere. Or I tasted that brand that you recommended and I hated it. Or, yeah. you know, like I, whatever, you know, tell me what is working and what's not working. And then I take another pass at suggesting things for you know, what's not working. And so it is a collaboration. Like we are, it's not me lording over you as a healthcare provider, like scolding you for not (laughs) doing what you weren't supposed to do. It's me on team you, like helping you figure out how to make this work for you. That's incredible. And that that's how it should be. Like, as you're saying this, I'm like, yes, this all makes so much sense, but unfortunately that's not, that's not always the case. So, um, it's, I appreciate all the, the work that you're doing. It's, it's great. Um, I want to touch on something that you spoke about a lot in the book and that is fiber. So for me having IVD, I have feared fiber for a while and I feel like I had a total aha moment when you were explaining um, the different textures of fiber and how you just can put it in a smoothie or cooking, uh, cooking different types of vegetables can make them more, uh, easily tolerated. So walk me through why fiber is so important and why as an IBD patient, we should not fear fiber. Right. So, you know, fiber is the sort of nourishment of your gut microbiome. And, you know, fiber is indigestible to humans, therefore it ends up in the GI tract and feeds the microbiome. And very diverse high fiber diets are associated with very diverse, resilient, um, abundant uh, gut microbiota, which, you know, are generally healthier um, and less prone to, you know, disease and less susceptible to pathogens, right? Like people with Crohn's disease are really susceptible to C. diff infection, for example. And, um, and the immune system, like we have a lot of these immune cells, like right in the, those, like right in those under layers of the GI tract. And there's this like mucus barrier that's supposed to keep bacteria far away from adhering to the gut wall so that they cannot have contact with the immune cells. Well, when you're microbiome is fiber starved and fiber deprived, those bacteria start to eat away at that mucus layer because it nourishes them. And so you have this very depleted physical barrier function um, that can really aggravate chronic inflammation because now all of a sudden these bacteria are coming mighty darn close to that, you know, that gut wall and right underneath that surface is your immune system. Um, and so fiber like is objectively important for anti-inflammation when also when we feed the microbiome, certain of its inhabitants produce short chain fatty acids, which are incredibly anti-inflammatory. And so there's a lot of mechanisms by which fiber has an anti-inflammatory effect for humans. And, and, and that's no different for humans with Crohn's disease. The problem, as you know, is tolerance. And so while fiber may be objectively health-promoting and anti-inflammatory, boy, oh boy, can certain types of fiber feel 
like crap when you are in an IBD flare, right? I mean, it's like if you've got this like active, angry inflammation and you take like a scrub brush to it, like that's not going to feel good. And it can really aggravate diarrhea and it can really aggravate pain. And people who have strictures or adhesions, you know, various types of narrowing can also even be prone to obstructions if they eat too much fiber or too much of the wrong type of fiber. And so there's always been this kind of natural tension between what is objectively health promoting and anti-inflammatory and also what is tolerable. Right. And so how do you break that trade-off? The way that you break that trade-off is by manipulating the physical particle size of the fiber, right? And so when you think about intact fiber, because your body cannot break down fiber, by definition, your body cannot break down fiber. We don't have enzymes for it. Like the only way you really can kind of break it down is you know, chewing, yeah, (laughs) chewing and maybe some acid will kind of degrade it a little bit, but like, you know, for a lot of fiber, especially coarse, what we call insoluble fiber, leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, skins, peels, you know, once you've chewed it up, however tiny you have chewed it, however tiny a piece you've chewed it into is pretty much like the size it is going to be on its way out. Like that is like, and a lot of people will even say like, oh, I see whole pieces of lettuce. And I'm like, well, then you didn't chew it very well. (laughs) Um, You know, because however well you chew it is how it comes out. And like, let's be honest, like how well can anybody chew like raw kale? Yeah. Like even if you chewed it a hundred times, like it's not pureed. Like it's just not. It's not. It's just not right. And so, you know, that's going to probably feel horrible or be an obstruction risk for many, many people with IBD. But now what would happen if you took that raw kale that you were about to make into a salad and you threw it into a Vitamix and you turned it into a green smoothie? Is anybody actually worried that a smoothie is going to obstruct them? Of course not, because you've just taken the particle size of that fiber like literally down to the smallest particle size that fiber could possibly be. Yeah. On paper, the number of grams of fiber is still the same. Vitamins, still the same. The nutrition is the same, but it's physical properties and therefore the physical experience of it moving through your GI tract is going to be really different. And so using, you know, pureeing and mashing and peeling and cooking and, you know, all of these interventions to make typically high fiber foods into sort of smaller, lower particle size foods are a way that you can get a lot of the anti-inflammatory benefits of these very nutrient dense foods, right? Beans become hummus, nuts become almond butter, you know, kale becomes a green smoothie, berries, you know, again, go into smoothies, you know, certain types of veggies, you know, get pureed into soups, like, you know, not, and I'm not suggesting that everybody eat baby food, obviously, like that's yeah. not at all what I'm saying. Like you yeah. can also chew your food. Um, but like, especially with like, mostly like that coarse type of fiber, the skins, the seeds, the leaves, the nuts, those types of fibers, I really do recommend, you know, yeah. pureeing and mashing. Um, and then the other type of fiber, like the soluble fiber, things that don't have thick skins or peels or in th- or lots of seeds, you know, like butternut squash or beets or, you know, um, cauliflower florets or whatever, just cook them really well until they're fork tender. And then when you eat them, by the time you've chewed them, your teeth will basically puree them. And then we're not worried. Um, and so it really is a lot about how you prepare your foods and that enables you to eat a much more varied diet, which is good for you nutritionally. It's good for your microbiome. It's good for anti-inflammation. Yeah. And that's, that's incredible. And I think 
you know, as you are giving these suggestions in the book and, and here as well, it's making these foods so much more accessible. So usually when someone would just think, okay, I can't have kale, you know, cause I'm not going to eat a, a kale salad. You sort of put that out of your head, or at least for me, I put that in a category of food I can't have, but the suggestions that you have are making these foods able to be reincorporated into your diet just in different ways. So something I noticed is you're, you never say, Oh, you you can never have this. Um, it's just a, suggestions on how to incorporate different foods in a more gut friendly way. What does would you agree with that? Or yeah, I mean, yeah, for the most part, I mean, like, there's very few foods, and like, I'm struggling to think of one that I'd be like, you should like literally never <laughs> eat that food in any way, shape, or form. I yeah. mean, like there's really, there's not that, you know, there's just certain foods that are going to be riskier in a portion dependent way. Right. So people are like, Oh, you know, you know, you shouldn't eat like things with lots of skins, like grapes or something or cherries. Those have lots of skins. But I think that we all know that like, if you ate one grape, like what's going to happen if you eat one grape, probably very little, right? Like, or nothing. Like, even if you have stricturing and, you know, and, and narrowing, like one grape is probably not going to obstruct you. The problem is I can't tell you how many grapes will. Right. Like, so I don't like, I don't know, like, I can't give you that assuredness. If you just stick to 4.5 grapes, like you, you can tolerate them and you won't have diarrhea and you won't have pain. So like, all I can tell you is these are the categories of food that get many people with IBD into trouble in a portion dependent manner. And I hear it a lot with salad, right? Like some people Mm -hmm. like love salad and they just want to eat salad and they've had a lot of like obstructions and they're like, do you mean I can never eat salad again? You're telling me I'm not allowed to eat salad. I'm like, it's not that I'm not allowed. Like you don't need my permission to eat it or not eat it. It's like your body is going to deny you permission to eat it at a certain portion. And I just can't tell you that like a side salad will always be okay. And an entree won't, or like three bites of salad will always be okay. And the fourth bite will set you over. Like, I just, I can't tell you with any amount of precision So I'm telling you the categories of food that your body is likely to put up a fight against. Yeah. (laughs) And you ultimately, as the eater, have to decide whether you're going to continue to partake in those in their intact form. And if so, at what portions, you know, and and if you want to eat those foods in larger portions, I'm offering you a lot of ideas and solutions about how to do that. So you don't have to, like, stress about it or, you know, or, or get yourself into trouble. Right. So you can make an informed decision as the person who's eating the food. Yeah, that no, that totally, totally makes sense. Um, Great. Well, a couple more questions for you. This is sort of switching gears a little bit, but we um, we touched on it earlier, just about different diets that sometimes can be trendy um, and how they can actually be detrimental. A couple of things that come to mind, and you mentioned in the book, um, like keto has been really big over the past couple of years, um, adding coconut oil to literally everything possible is another trend. Um, so how do you navigate these trends in the diet industry and how do you guide your patients to do so? God, it's such a big question. I mean, diet trends are the bane of any evidence-based practitioner's (laughs) existence (laughs) because the human body 
is not fundamentally different now than it was, you know, whatever, when cavemen were around, like our bodies are not all that different. Our diets are, yes. Our environments are, yes, but our bodies are not. And so this idea that somehow there's going to be all these like breakthrough new diets, that this is how humans are supposed to eat. We're supposed to be carnivores or we're not supposed to eat grains or we're not supposed to eat this, or you need to supplement, you know, with collagen peptides or whatever. Like, really? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. really, like the human body has changed so much that like all of a sudden these things that were never true ever are now all of a sudden true because you're making money on it or somebody wrote a book about it. Right. Uh, oh, we all have to have celery juice. Really? Like what about civilizations where they didn't have celery? Like, right. like we didn't have a juice. I, exactly. And so it's like these just like sweeping generalizations and pronouncements about like, this is the one right way to eat. And I think like anytime anyone says that this is the one right way to eat, like you're spidey sense should go off like yes has it ever been the case that all human beings have consumed the same diet have we not seen human civilizations thriving in different parts of the world who ate very different diets like why is it so hard for us to like grasp this idea that we all don't have to eat the same diet yeah that there are many versions of a healthy diet and i can have a healthy diet that looks really really different than yours and And that's okay. And these two things can be true at once. And so getting rid of, again, that dogmatism and the evangelism around diet, as if it's like a religion that we all have to be following. um, There are just so many versions of the healthy diet. I always like, and one thing that I do point to, and when you ask how I navigate it, I sometimes try to point my patients to the, these blue zones. I don't know if you've heard of the blue zones in the world. Like these So the blue zones are these five civilizations in the world where they have extremely high percentages of people who live to age 100 and beyond with very, very low burdens of chronic disease, like diabetes, cancer, heart disease, et cetera. Um, And so these are kind of what I call the original influencers. Like these are the, like, these are the true health influencers. These are the people who have actually lived to a hundred and beyond and figuring out what they do. Like to listen to like a hot 20 year old about like their healthy diet, like you could die tomorrow. Like, I don't trust you. Like, you know, I I trust the hundred year old lady who's going (laughs) to tell me all of her secrets. Exactly. (laughs) And so the blue zones are, I think, the original health influencers and the five blue zones that have been and there's a book in the 90s that kind of came out about them. And there's like a whole like world of blue zone stuff online. Um, One is um, Okinawa, Japan. One is in um, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. One is in Sardinia, Italy. One is in Icaria, Greece. And one is in Loma Linda, California. It's a group of Seventh-day Adventists who are vegetarian. Um, And so these are really different parts of the world. Like, don't tell me you think that the Okinawans are eating the same diet as the Costa Ricans and those people are eating the same diet as the Greeks and the Sardinians. Like, these people are, right, they're eating really different diets. Um, and that's number one. So they're not all eating the same diet. Number two, none of them are carnivore. None of them are grain free. None of them are, um, you know, keto, like they all eat carbohydrates. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in many of them, carbohydrate, in fact, in most of them, carbohydrates are a very significant majority of their calories. Um, and they're actually on pretty low protein diets. They all eat the only one common thread across all the diets is they all eat beans every single day. 
half a cup to a cup a day, every single day. They're different beans. In Okinawa, it's soybeans. And in Costa Rica, it's probably more black beans. And, you know, in Loma Linda, probably a lot of lentils. And in, you know, in the Mediterranean, probably a lot of, you know, chickpeas and fava beans and things like that. And so all these, you know, all these diets like, oh, legumes are inflammatory. Yeah, well, tell that to the blue zones. Like these people (laughs) live longer than all of you, right? So, you know, a lot of the fad and the dogma just completely is annihilated when you start to look at the world's longest living, healthiest people and how they eat. Um, And I do like to kind of reference that because I think many people can find it very intuitive to understand and, and, and observe themselves. That's so interesting. Now I'm, I, as soon as we get off this call, I'm going to be <laughs> Googling this, reading books about it. I'm, you would is- love it. Read the blue zones book. Honestly, Michelle, you'll love okay. it. It's, I think it's really a refreshing way to think about how to eat for life. I definitely will read that. I'm, I'm so excited. And that, that I feel like that really goes back to everything that, that you're about and your book is about where it's really that balance and it's that sustainability of the, uh, of the eating style that, that you're adopting. Um, and then just, yeah, I, I, I love that. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, so last thing that I really want to, um, touch on as a whole here, uh, what are some gut friendly swaps or tips to incorporate into family meals? So some background on this, I, you said you're a busy mom, I'm a busy mom. Um, and it's so hard sometimes when you're on the go or packing lunches or trying to come up with a quick dinner, um, to really adhere to, you know, some of these more gut friendly, uh, choices. So what are some of your like go-to swaps or go-to tips? So when you say gut friendly, do you mean like tolerable for people with like gentle digestive tracts or like healthy for the microbiome gut friendly? Cause I think that that could be two different things sometimes. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. I would say, um, like healthy for the microbiome, like say like for my kids, I, I know I have IBD and I want to make sure that I'm giving them a diet that sets them up as well as possible to not have what I have. Yeah. So, I mean, the number one gut friendly food you could eat, and it's also longevity food are beans. Okay. Um, and my pantry, if we looked at it right now is full of canned beans. So I do not soak well once in a while in the winter, if I'm using the instant pot, like I will soak some beans for like, like a pasta fajoule, but pretty much I buy canned beans and use them exclusively. They are cheap. They can get dinner is in five minutes. (laughs) Like it's very, very easy. And so, you know, my kids are 12, I have twins. Um, and so when I'm looking for like, just like a fast, easy weeknight meal, I have a recipe for black bean soup that requires like four cans of black beans, a red pepper, you know, like, you know, like an onion, like it's a very like straightforward soup and like with some yummy Mexican seasoning. And then when the soup is done, everyone takes a big hand of like tortilla chips and we crush them up in the soup and you put some avocado or guacamole and that's dinner. Um, Like, easy right like sometimes I'll even do like not I'll let my kids do like a not like they know how to make it themselves for lunch like nachos where we'll get like the multi-grain tortilla chips with like the seeds and the whole grains yeah and like my son knows how to open up a can of black beans and add some cumin and garlic powder and salt and then they just put those on top of the chips with some shredded cheddar cheese and you know some you know again like guacamole or mashed avocado a little bit of salsa And like, that's not a bad lunch for a kid, you know, like that's fine. And like, they're like, oh, I get to eat nachos for lunch. But like, 
it's fiber, it's diversity, it's great. Um, and, you know, so I do use beans very regularly in our weekday meals, um, especially because, you know, like all kids, like my kids aren't the best at vegetables. Like there's some that they yeah. eat more than others, but when they're eating beans, it's like, I feel like they are definitely getting like the fiber and the phytonutrients, um, even when vegetables can be more challenging. So for me, that's kind of like an absolute go-to. That is a great idea. I, I love that because my, my son, he's two and a half and he is in a, an anti-vegetable phase of life right now. So anything that, that I could do to give him, um, to make sure that he's getting nutrients and getting fiber. So that, that is, that's great. And I love that you said that you just have, you know, canned beans in your, in your pantry. I'm yeah. just talking up because that that's great, uh, you know, to add in, to really anything. Um, yeah. So. I remember when my kids were younger, like your kids age, like when they were doing like a lot of like the, you know, the finger food, the toddler yeah. preschooler snacks, one thing that worked really well for us was a dry roasted chickpeas. Um, Cause I remember at that age, like, you know, kids like to eat out of like a crinkly bag. Like they yeah. love like the goldfish bags and like the chip bags. And, um, and so I bought these like little individual packets of dry roasted chickpeas. So they felt like they thought they were getting like a crunchy, salty chippy snack, but it was chickpeas <laughs> like they're literally and they're you know they're like roasted in like an olive oil or whatever and with some salt and and they're so healthy and my kids would eat them I mean they still eat them and now I put them in salads or sometimes I'll use them as a crouton in a soup or whatever um and so those are also really great to have around if you've got kids well, that's, I'm, I'm like typing all this down. I'm going to do a big uh, <laughs> market order later today. So um, that's, that's amazing. I feel like you need to have um, like a, a cookbook with all of this stuff too. Oh girl, you know, who has time? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to write my cookbook for me? No, no, no. I, I can't, I can't cook at all. So I need you to write the cookbook. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so I actually have another book that came out five years before regular and yeah. that was called the bloated belly whisperer. And that actually has 50 recipes in it. Awesome. Um, and that was, you know, these recipes were developed for me by a food editor from Bon Appetit. So, um, and those were kind of, you know, belly friendly in terms of people who have like digestive issues. So like 25 yeah. of the recipes are what I call GI gentle, which are sort of like soft, like, you know, the more soluble fiber, not roughage, like low, like no garlic, low to no onion, you know, not super yeah. fatty. So for more of like an IBS kind of, or like dyspeptic kind of person. Yeah. Um, and then the other 25 were low FODMAP recipes for people following a low FODMAP diet, whether for IBS or IBD. And so if you do want some Tamara recipes, you can get them from my first book, The Bloated Belly Whisperer. I will definitely be checking that out. <laughs> um, and then I guess there's a perfect time. Can you share some details on where listeners can get your newest book, Regular? Yeah, so Regular is available everywhere books are sold. So your independent bookstore or your Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Um, and it's, you know, just Regular by Tamara Duker-Foreman. Awesome. And then if listeners are interested in working with you or learning more information about what you do, where can they find you? So my website is thebloatedbellywhisperer.com or just my name, tamaraduker.com. Um, and you could read about my books, the quizzes. So both of my books have sort of like a self-diagnostic quiz to yeah. kind of navigate you to a chapter that 
might be relevant to you. And so both of those quizzes are available for free on my website. So you can also take the bloated belly whisperer quiz if you're a bloated person, or you can take the regular quiz if you've got GI issues like diarrhea or constipation. Um, and so those are available. Um, information about my clinical practice is available online um, and links to many articles I've been interviewed in and podcasts that I've appeared on are also on my website. Awesome. And I will link that in the show notes. So it's easy to get to. Um, thank you so much. You shared so much great information. I have so many personal takeaways from this conversation. So thank you. Um, and I just, I really appreciate all that you do for, um, you know, the IBD community and really anyone who has a, a GI system, a digestive tract, which is all of us. So thank you. My pleasure. All right, everyone, that was my conversation with Tamara Duker-Freeman, the author of Regular. If you haven't checked out her book yet, I highly recommend you do so. I read it on the way back from Digestive Disease Week. It has a ton of information that can help you feel more empowered when you're having conversations with your doctors or just managing your own GI health. So like Tamara said, you can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold locally. Uh, and... I hope you had as many takeaways as I did from this episode. You better believe my family's dinner had beans in it after after this conversation, and I did stock up, so my pantry is full of canned beans now. Um, but let me know what you guys think. Feel free to shoot me a DM or an email, and I will be back next week with a brand new episode. I hope you all stay well, and I will chat with you next week.